We, we humans are a curious bunch. Let's put it that way. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say is that oh, food, you're I would say use something? it collectively on that one. Oh, really? <laughs> All right. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by Wait for all, all the different recycling bins. Do you, do you guys get as confused as I am? I see the different recycling bins. I know what I have in my hand and I can't match it to any picture. Just remember, blue equals sad. <laughs> I throw everything away because I can't figure out where to put it. Well, I do. if you if you're looking for a way to cheer yourself up, you should check out this new website called the Population Health Exchange. Oh, Chris, you are so you are so you ahead it. of me. We haven't introduced ourselves yet. That oh, comes after I'm Chris the introduction. Gill. That's Matt Fox, Donthea. Uh, that's me. There we go. And Happy you guys are where? Again. Where are you? We're, We're in Boston at the Godly in Studio the, Studios. In the Godly Studio. And I am once again in sunny London, and that is not a joke. The past Nor two days have been... Nor is it a continent. No, people got very upset about the fact I that I referred to it as a continent. I apologize profusely. It is not a continent. I am very aware of that. Anyway. You, you insulted a whole kingdom. A continent is a kind of breakfast you get across the channel. That is so right. Okay. Uh, so as Chris mentioned, you might want to check out the Population Health Exchange <laughs> website. Where you can find lifelong learning tools, programs, and classes, lots of good stuff. I'm not even going to try and plug it because Chris has already screwed cool me up. Podcasts that get five star ratings mostly. Oh, uh, but what I would want to do is <laughs> remind everyone I do want to remind everyone to go ahead and rate us on iTunes. Uh, or all your other podcast apps. Give us a give us a rating. Give us a uh, a review. We would very much uh, appreciate it. And if you do that, we'll give you a mug. And if you, we will. Yeah, we'll send everyone you a mug. Who, everyone who gives a rating now gets a mug. From now on, yes. Oh wow! Wait a okay. Can we can apparently, we follow through on this? Do we have resources? Do we have a budget? Don's got yeah, some do. budget. No, Nick is saying we don't got no budget. <laughs> okay. Well, how about this? You get a you get a hearty thank you from us. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Not good uh, so we do want to uh, want to let you know a little bit of an update here. Uh, Don, Don apparently has got the latest numbers, and apparently we've got forty one thousand nine hundred and sixty two downloads from fifty five countries. Fifty five countries, sixty five five star ratings, and a bunch of reviews, which we are so pleased about. So thank we you very love much. Those reviews. Yeah, keep them coming. We 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 definitely appreciate it. It's over hundred countries. It's over hundred countries. Oh wow. Oh, wow. Over 100 countries. Wait a minute. How many countries are in the world? 182? I think so. Hmm. I made that number up. 187. Something like that. That The point is, we need to hit those other 100 or those other 80-something. Or is that the number of hours in a week? We even got a download from the Russian Federation. Just one? I think just one, yeah. All right. So anyway, let's get on to the show. Yeah. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study which was investigating whether e-cigarettes are better uh, than nicotine replacement therapy for quitting smoking. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about when you can draw conclusions from so-called null results, null trials or null studies. Uh, and then in our amazing and amusing segment, which is our third segment, we will get into some of the things that make us laugh out loud, or Don will explain to us what cat food tastes like, which we very much appreciate. <laughs> or, or what to do with your Lego head. 
or <laughs> what to do with your Lego <laughs> head. There you go. Not to do with it. Yeah. Or well, however you want to approach that. So in segment one, we are going to talk about an article that looked at using e-cigarettes compared to nicotine patches uh, to help people quit smoking. It was done in the UK. The study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled A Randomized Trial of E-Cigarettes versus Nicotine Replacement. The first author was Peter Hayek of Queen's Mary University of London and Peter Hayek and colleagues. Now, of course, this is a um, a topic that is hot in the news in general, e-cigarettes, and it certainly is a controversial topic. I, I don't know whether uh, all the science is truly in on what we actually know about e-cigarettes, but that isn't really the point of this study. The point of this study is more to see whether e-cigarettes are more helpful than nicotine patches at helping you quit smoking. So let me get you some of the headlines on this one. The New York Post says, vaping really can help you quit smoking, study finds. Business Insider says e-cigarettes could help adult smokers quit when paired with therapy, which I want to come back to that one. Vaping much better than smoking cessation aid than gum and patches, major study finds. That was uh, CBS News. And then Time Magazine says e-cigarettes more effective than nicotine replacement in helping smokers quit study show. Now, see, that is really saucy of them because it is not replacing nicotine. It is another... Right, is another source of nicotine. Yeah, so what a, are they talking a, about? Did they really read that paper? Misleading. I, I think there are. I think that the uh, the headline before that was also quite misleading. I'll come back to that. So, Don, can you can you start us off? Can you tell us what the study was all about? Sure. So we we all know smoking's bad. People definitely want to quit, and um, it's one of the hardest things to do. There, I think, was a major improvement in the tools that assist people in in, in quitting. When nicotine patches and lozenges and tablets became available, and there was a, a, a lot of a lot of interest in whether those actually were going to be successful in getting people to um, um, quit smoking, but some of the early studies that really looked at that didn't really find th- that to be the case. That they were really not that effective at getting people to stop smoking. And there was a Cochrane review, I think, that showed that pretty much all of the studies. Um, or in support of that, um, and in part because I think that the technology of these devices has has changed over time, and what has recently become available are these um, e-cigarettes or vaping, in essence. And um, the the more recent iterations of this allow you to dial up or dial down um, the amount of nicotine that is delivered, so they're a lot more sort of adaptable to individuals. So in any event, this group decided to do a a head-to-head comparison of these new vaping devices against a nicotine replacement delivery device of their choice. So it was a two-group, pragmatic, multi-center, individually randomized controlled trial, which is a mouthful, as Matt said, which uh, was done in the UK, which has a free stop smoking service as part of the National Health Service. Subjects were recruited um, at clinics, through advertisements, through social media, um, the inclusion criteria were a desire to stop smoking and not currently y- using either of these two kinds of devices. Exclusions were um, that people had to not be pregnant or, or breastfeeding. So at baseline, subjects um, would be asked to choose a quit date, a date where they wanted to quit smoking, which was usually about um, a week later. And then they were randomized to either the e-cigarette or the other nicotine replacement device, and they could choose whichever one they want, whether it was a patch or gum or lozenge or mouth spray, et cetera, or they could use combinations. And they were given a a three-month supply of those things, which is typically $130 for every three months. And then the e-cig group were given refillable 30-mil bottles of nicotine extract. 
um, and they could choose the type of delivery device that they wanted. Everybody signed a commitment to not use the other group's method for at least four weeks. And they were then also counseled once a week for, for the first four weeks of the study. And that was sort of a uni unique aspect of this. They measured the exhaled carbon monoxide, which is a tell that you've actually been using cigarettes. Um, and they measured it every time they came in for the first month after randomization. They had phone contact with people at 25 and 52 weeks. Their primary outcome was one year of sustained abstinence from cigarette smoking, which meant no more than five cigarettes from two weeks after the stop date with carbon monoxide valida validation at the one-year follow-up. Um, and if people were lost to follow-up, they were considered to be not abstinent. Their secondary outcomes were abstinence from 26 to 52 weeks at four weeks or seven-day abstinence at 4, 26, and 52 weeks. They also measured relapse rate and time to re relapse. Um, the other outcome measures were smoking status, expired carbon monoxide, and ratings of withdrawal symptoms. I think as well as adverse reactions. At, also looked at severity of smoking-related symptoms like cough right. frequency mm -hmm. and phlegm production right. and things like that. Right. So there were a whole bunch of things, things that were measured and, and, and out, outlooks, but I, I, men I mentioned to you what the primary and secondary outcomes were. So they had about 2,000 people screened, of whom about 1,000 attended the first session, and from that they randomized 886. So pretty equal groups, 430 in one and 447 in the other. And in the e-cigarette group, 81% of them made it to 12 months. And in the other group, um, 76 made it to 12 months in terms of follow-up. At baseline, from what I could tell, they looked basically balanced in terms of age, sex, whether they were employed, whether they were entitled to free prescriptions, median number of cigarettes typically smoked, expired carbon monoxide at baseline, past use of supplements and e-cigarettes. So the, um, as far as the primary outcome was concerned, at 12 months, total abstinence for the um, group that was um, using e-cigarettes e was 18%. And in the other group, it was 9.9% or an 8.1% point difference. The number needed a to... Absolute or relative? I think it was absolute. That's an absolute difference, yeah. Yeah, absolute difference of 8.1%. 8, 8, 8 mm -hmm. That calculated to the number needed to treat for one successful abstinence would be 12. So there, you would need to um, have 12 people go through this program in order to expect that there would be one person who would successfully be abstinent at 12 months. Among one-year abstinence, 80% were using e-cigarettes versus 9% in the, were using the other nicotine replacement mode. Um, as far as set secondary outcomes were concerned, abstinence at all levels, at all the intervals that I mentioned, were better with e-cigarettes. And they did a series of sensitivity analyses with various protocol deviations, um, and there was didn't seem to have any effect on the outcome. They, the e-cigarettes remained the, the better choice. And the relapse rate and time to relapse did not differ by groups. So I think yeah, there was minor differences in safety. Is there anything else that I'm missing? No, it was pretty effective. Yeah, it was pretty effective. Well, uh, so I would certainly agree. I mean, it certainly it was more effective than the the standard options that were available to people. Although, eighteen you know, percent is the, not all that effective. Eighteen percent. I mean, this is a this, yeah. cigarettes are hard to quit, and we've seen this before, right? We looked at a a previous uh, smoking cessation trial, and and. Everything that has been tried, even when it's an improvement over what's previously been done, the quit rates are always pretty low. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, this is this is not easy. Yeah. No, and it's 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 interesting, and in, in, just in terms of the debate that you had referred to previously, Matt, because you know if you were going to make e-cigarettes available for this particular purpose, you have to worry about e-cigarettes being made available to people who are not currently smoking as a gateway drug. So, on balance, from a from a population basis. It, in fact, may not be good to go this route if you're only having that relatively small incremental benefit in this very specialized population. Yeah, that's a really good point. Chris, what's, what's, what's your take on this study? Well, I, I wanted to, I, actually, that was the thing I'd circled on my list of things to talk about, and I wanted to go at that first, is that we are not talking about whether e-cigarettes are benign. We're talking about whether, the, you know, whether they're an effective, you know, I'm not even going to say smoking cessation aid so much as a nicotine replacement strategy. You know, one of the things that was really interesting in their data, and I, I was curious whether either of you had noticed this, that the at the end, they talk about whether people were still, you know, had what the, the, the total abstinence rate was relative to the use of the um, nicotine replacement strategy. Mm -hmm. And so they had like 18, what, 18% was the final quit rate or mm -hmm. the abstinence rate as at, at 52 weeks, mm -hmm. which we should also note may be a little bit optimistic because it's based on a reported abstinence plus the, you know, the carbon monoxide reading, but the carbon monoxide only tells you about the last 24, 24 hours, hours or right. so. And so, you know, this is, this is, this is equivalent to, you know, the, 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 the dental floss conundrum, right? It's like when, you know, you're going to go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned. You know, they're going to ask you about dental floss and you haven't been flossing. So the day before you floss, you floss so that you can say with a straight face that, yeah, I floss. <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one, actually. Uh, I, I, I think <laughs> you are. I have a feeling that this is no, a pretty common, <laughs> common dodge. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, there's another equivalent, which is going, going to the exercise, uh, you know, to go to the gym, and you get on the, the eucalyptus, the, 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 the elliptical. The eucalyptus? <laughs> the elliptical machine. The eucalyptus machine. The minty, the minty machine that the koalas ride, so they say trim. Yeah, so, <laughs> no, it's great. It's fantastic. Anyway, it, it always asks you to put in your weight, and I always lie to it. I was like, why am I lying to a computer? It doesn't care. <laughs> so, so self-report, you know, we, we humans are a curious bunch. Let's put it that way. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say is that oh, food, you're I would use something? a collective weight on that one. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. All right. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a, a private eye to follow you around and see how you're... <laughs> All right. Anyway, All right. He's, he's quieting down now. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the point I was trying to make is that 18% of people like reported that they quit, which may be, you know, maybe a little bit of an overestimate, but 40% were, were using their, their e-cigarettes, right? So their, their, their e-cigarette use rate was double the rate of quitting. Okay. But the quitting rate meant that only that actually 80% of the people were still smoking. So if you do the math, that means a lot of people must therefore have been smoking and still using e-cigs, right? right? Whereas right. the number was like 4% yeah. for who, who had quoted quit. And then, but a lot of them were still using their, you know, not so many, but their nicotine replacement patches. They were much less yep. popular. And so yeah. we have to assume that there's a huge number of people who are now smoking and vaping, not just, you know, um, so it's an improvement, but, but we are, we are still a long way away from the population um, level nirvana of no smoking. Oh, totally. Matt, are, mm. are vape shops popping up all over the place in London? Where they yep. did this study? Absolutely. I mean, that's got to happen. I don't know if they're popping up, this. but they're, they're everywhere. Yeah, they're everywhere here too. I don't, I don't, I don't visit them, but I, I, 
I see that. Now, now with with all that said, I still thought the study was really was really quite well done. Oh, absolutely, I it was solid, yeah. and yeah. I was impressed with it. And I, yeah. you know, I was persuaded that this is this is a, a better strategy, and that you know, if if we're talking about harm reduction, you know, this this seems like a reasonable way to go, and it has obvious parallels with how we think about methadone. Yeah. Right, but the goal of methadone is not to get people to not take opiates. The goal is to is is to have people use opiates in a safer way that's not going to lead to a fatal overdose. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. here we're saying we're not really. I mean, we're hoping that they will quit, but we're also just saying, you know, inhaling nic- nicotine vapors without tar and all those, you know, the stuff that's in the particulates that are in and in tobacco smoke. That is a probably we assume, but though I guess the the jury is still somewhat out on this, but probably safer and healthier for you I, than cigarettes because but, it doesn't involve do we know that? I think, But do, I think it's important. Do we know that? Well, I mean, we know that the carbon monoxide is bad and we know that cigarette mm-hmm. tar is bad. So we're, we're, yep. we're emitting a lot of things. We don't, what we don't really know is that nicotine intrinsically, you know, how safe is that? I don't, I think. Well, we don't, I don't know. Let, let, me read you, let me read you a list of the nicotine health risks. So these are the oh, risks yeah, associated it. specifically with nicotine, not necessarily delivered through a cigarette vehicle, but it's blood clots, atherosclerosis, disturbed sleep, diarrhea, heartburn, arrhythmias, high blood pressure, stroke. And in pregnancy, there's child obesity, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, respiratory difficulties, infertility. Other effects include pneumonia, tremors, pain in the muscles, insulin resistance. So it's, it's, it's not a benign it's, drug. Right. No, well, no, fair enough. But do we know the, all, you know, the, all the chemicals that, that can potentially be put into e-cigarettes and what the implications of those are? It's not are? just pure nicotine. Sure, that's, that's another good point. It's a little bit yeah, of the wild, wild I mean, west so there. I, when, when I read this study, I mean, I, kudos to these, to these authors. I mean, I think they did a very nice job. I think I, there's some things I could quibble about, like, you know, is there potential contamination, I guess is the word you'd use for a crossover that you have some people in the, you know, you can buy these, any of these products over the counter. And so you may have some people, in fact, we know there were some people who were in the non-e-cig group that used the e-cigs. But they all signed a commitment not to use advice in the other arm. Yep. And they promised. They promised. Isn't that good enough? Signing that means as much as Chris putting his weight into the exercise machine, apparently, <laughs> or telling you that he flossed. 152 pounds. Uh-huh. But one of the things that I did think about when I was reading this is that, you know, is this the right outcome? You know, is, is quit the only thing that <sighs> would help yes. us make the decision around whether to say this is the yes. this is the intervention? Clearly, it is preferable in terms of helping people quit smoking. I suspect you're asking a rhetorical question, Matt. I have a, Why? I, I have my, my antenna have gone up. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a, a non-rhetorical answer, which is I think fantastic. what you're hoping for. <laughs> which is I was surprised that they didn't look at the total com- cigarette consumption as a, a uh-huh. sort of a, a you know a non-binary continuous variable instead. I, I was curious about that. Like, yeah, I mean, it's you know, as as physicians, it is it, it, it's a it's a piece of information that we collect in a semi-quantitative way. We ask how many packs per day have you smoked for how long? So and of course we know they lie to us when they give us the answer. Right, right, right. In terms of the also in terms of the of alcohol that they drink. But but we know that there is a dose response effect right. with respect to cigarette smoke. And so if we're going back to that that funny dichotomy in the data where 40% were presumably, you know, 40% were using these replacement devices, but only 20% had quit, meaning that at least 20% were still smoking while they were using the replacement device, if, I'm, if my logic is correct here, uh, one would still wonder if like perhaps they had reduced their cigarette consumption substantially. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, in, in some ways it might actually underestimate the, the benefit of this harm reduction. on a harm reduction yeah. you know, scale. 
Yeah, I, I was. I, I suppose I wasn't actually going in that direction specifically. More what I was thinking was, if if it's true, you know, we don't know what the the true harmful effects of e-cigarettes are. Then wouldn't a better outcome be a more long term outcome that was something that told us about the, you know, the the health benefits of using e-cigarettes to quit? So you mean follow them for another twenty years and count the number of cases of cancer? Yeah, I mean, isn't that ultimately where you want to go yeah, with this? Yeah, but is that a doable study? Well, I don't think it's a. It's going to take twenty years, but it is a do- doable study. Yeah, I'm not arguing. Again, I'm not arguing that that is the only thing you'd care about. I'm just saying, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I don't know the literature well enough to know, but I don't know whether or not we really know the long term effects of of e-cigarettes yet, and therefore it just seems like. You know, yep. we'd want to know a bit more. Yeah, the absolutely. other thing that, that, that this made me think about, which is something we really haven't talked about much, is that when we talk about effects, we're talking about averages, population averages. So on average, 18% quit in one group, uh, which was the e-cigarette group, and on average, 9.9% quit in the nicotine replacement group. But, you know, these these... Interventions are not um, the effects that they have on individuals can be counterintuitive. So it's theoretically possible that there are people who were in the e-cigarette group and didn't quit, but if they had been in the you know the the gum group, might have quit. So there are there there may actually be some people for whom being randomized to the to the uh, e-cigarette group is Bad. was a, was was a negative for mm-hmm. them. And, and I mean it's it's a little hard to imagine, but I mean the way I always think about this is you know uh, self-driving cars are becoming you know soon a reality, and we could get to the point at which you know we could reduce traffic accidents by some massive number, but there will also be some people who will die. In car accidents, specifically because they used a, a, a self-driving vehicle, vehicle. Yeah. and you know that's on average. If if there's a net benefit, then we think that's good. But there will be people who will be negatively affected by these interventions as well. So that's just something that so true. I constantly remind so myself. Yeah, you can about. say the same thing about every single medicine on the market. Absolutely. No, no. I mean, uh, and you, it, with really just about anything. I mean, Except for uh, exercise, exercise, and and yeah. and heart attacks. I mean. It prevents heart attacks for some people. It, it will cause heart attacks yeah. for for others. So you know, there's yeah. a whole long list of things. So what we came out of this was was a was a new fact, or yep. a confirmation of a of a strongly held opinion that that e-cigarettes are probably a pretty good way of of substituting tobacco for something that will yep. be more uh, acceptable to people who are addicted to nicotine. Yeah. So can I ask a question? So I want to go back. So I said to you that I, I found one of the heading headlines kind of strange. You found a different one strange. But the one I found strange was e-cigarettes could help adult smokers when paired with therapy. And it's the when paired with therapy part that that I found interesting. Was your interpretation that you had to have therapy? No, no. This was one of those enhanced control strategies where both sides got counseled as like a standard of care. So that's the issue. There was no no when enhanced because we have no information about that. That was not part of the experiment. I I think the the difference was that this was one of the first, if not the first experiment to actually use counseling. And that was one of the criticisms that came out in the Cochrane Review, that the previous studies looking at um, nicotine replacement wasn't associated with counseling. And that was one of the advantages that they, I think the authors put forward. Right. But, but both groups in this case got the counseling. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you, Matt. Yeah. We're not looking at the effects of the counseling. Correct. The counseling washes out. It doesn't mean that the counseling couldn't have had an effect. It's just that we can't see that in this study. Yeah. So when they say, when they say when paired with therapy, I think they're getting at the fact that the 
both arms were paired with therapy and therefore you would interpret that as needing the therapy. But we, we actually don't, don't know, know whether right. therapy did right. anything or nothing. It's not part so of the experiment. It was, it was technically correct what they said, but intensely misleading. That's, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I suspect it was a misinterpretation on their part. Yeah. The other thing I did want to point out was that there was about 20, I think it's 22, 23% loss to follow up in this study. And you had um, about 20% of those assigned to nicotine replacement started using e-cigarettes. So this was not, you know, this is not your cleanest of comparisons, which is fine. I mean, this is real world. It's pragmatic. closer to real world. And so I'm okay with that. But I, I think we're not looking at the pure effects of, well, I shouldn't say that. The the crossover is probably fine in terms of real world. The lost follow-up is still a problem. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um I, I sort of wonder in a kind of slightly cynical and snarky way how many uh, pragmatic trials we're going to have to review before we roll our eyes when we see the word pragmatic. Yeah, that's fair. That wasn't snarky at all. It was snarky. And it, it, is, it, it is starting to like, it, like enter into the lexicon of what all trials must claim to be in order to be taken seriously is that they have to be pragmatic. And I'm, 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 I'm going to start pushing back, I think. All right. I would, I would like to do a study of like, you know, st- study designs trials. and to see how many claim to be pragmatic that are fundamentally different from any, from trials that didn't bother to call themselves pragmatic and whether the, I would pra- like the to word see pragmatic a, actually means anything after a while, or if it's just like the new, the new word. I would like to see an unpragmatic trial. Yes. There we go. Like a trial that was done by volunteers while using stilts. While juggling. <laughs> yep. There you go. <laughs> Yep. There you go. <laughs> I would li- I'd like to see that one. Uh, any, any other last points before I take the last word? Stilts nope. versus no stilts on the 100 meter dash. <laughs> Backwards. We want to know. Okay. Uh, so last word. I thought that the title of this study told me just about everything I needed to know, except one really critical piece of information, which was the outcome. A randomized trial of e-cigarettes versus nicotine replacement therapy. <laughs> on what? <laughs> to prevent losing my car keys? On stilt use? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it takes a whole lot of inference. Well, it could have been cancer. It could have been emphysema. Exactly. It could have been, could have been cancer. Been wheezing, you know, he's right. They, they, it could they have been like a lot of different things. very pithy, but I think this was a little bit... Pity. It's a pity he was so pithy. Yes. Uh, once again, a hundred and hundred and fifty word introduction. I am clearly writing my papers wrong. And then my favorite line or favorite piece of information for this entire study, they say that in their methods that they used a pseudo random number generator in state of software. Wow, that is very technically very, correct. That seemed very precise. Very precise. <laughs> well, let's see how short we can get our intros down. We can be like, disease bad. <laughs> Problem not solved. Therefore, ask study, question. <laughs> study done. It was two paragraphs. It was yeah. get it down to six no, words. I think, I think this was the was the shortest one we've ever we've ever seen. Yeah. I, th- I think most of us are used to writing three paragraph introductions. Two oh yeah, you have to have three paragraphs. Yeah. Three paragraphs, five hundred words. That's yeah. that is always my target. Yep. This was one hundred and fifty. I'm impressed. All right, let's 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 move on. Yeah, when does terse become a curse? Mm. Let's move on. So let's get to our second segment where we want to talk about so-called null trials. And I'm trying very hard not to refer to these as negative trials, which is what people will often refer to these as. Essentially a trial which came to a 
non uh, often a study that came to a non statistically significant finding although i would say a study that came to the conclusion that the there was no effect of the exposure on the outcome and this came up because uh we were batting around a a study that we were thinking about doing on the on the podcast for a segment 1 and we kind of nixed it because we basically said well they didn't really find anything it was a null trial and i am strongly of the view that that null findings are important findings right if you tell me that ice cream doesn't cause cancer, and we are confident that ice cream doesn't cause cancer, that's really important information because then I can go out and eat the ice cream. And I'm sure ice cream has no other negative impacts, so we will just stop right there. But the question becomes, when you look at studies that don't find an effect, how do you make the transition from saying something didn't find an effect to saying, I am confident there is no effect? What's your, what's your, Don, what's your take well, on you, that? You have to, you, I, I was just going to say that we have to distinguish, because I think it can be a little bit confusing. We have to distinguish between studies that are looking for superiority studies, in essence, and not equivalent studies, because equivalent studies so, are designed to find no difference. And when they so, so, find no difference, they are successful. Yeah. So superiority studies, meaning we're, we're looking for an effect, equivalency studies, studies that are specifically designed or, or non-inferiority trials, studies that are specifically designed with the idea that there probably is no, no improvement in mind, but we would be just as happy with an alternative that was equivalent. Right. Okay. Sorry. So go ahead. So the, so, so the question is what, what, what in, in my my thinking is the is the the benefit of those or is what, what well was the so, question, so, counselor so i think you i think what you were getting at with the equivalency trials is those studies are designed to specifically right. answer a, a null question right and so but for I, for this discussion we have to exclude those from the from consideration cuz right they're null well not null they're they're finding no difference well yeah though you could have a you could have a uh, you could have a an equivalency trial that didn't find equivalence <laughs> that found superiority as, as you well know, as I well Don, know, as we both know, those are the best kinds uh, so of studies. Can, we have we have certainly done that. Yes, and um, taught it think, every year. You, you think two things are going to be equivalent, and they're and they're not. Can, can we read but, into, into the record what what the trial was? Because I bet people are kind of curious now. Uh, it was a trial of of stilts. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> this That's is a, a trial that both Don and I were involved in that looked at uh, community based treatment for uh, severe pneumonia. No, no, we're Versus, talking about the, the, the trial that got us talking about today, about the in, in vitro fertilization. Oh, you're talking about the, the, the trial that, that set us off, which was a uh, study by Sarah Lenson. Uh, it was a randomized trial of endometrial scratching before in vitro fertilization, and they didn't find a, a benefit. Right, and, and specifically, they, they found that the relative risk, they were looking to see if endometrial scratching would increase fertility rates with, in, with IVF, and they found nothing. Yeah. But their, their, right. their relative risk between the two groups was 1.00, with a confidence interval that went from 0.78 to 1.27. So it was pretty... Uh, it was like point estimate, no difference, and a pretty tight confidence interval around that no difference. Is is the, is that a tight confidence interval? It, it, it could be tighter, of course, but this is, you know, certainly. The, I guess it's no disputing the point <laughs> estimate, right? No, I no, guess that, the rest that's is a more pretty. It's up to the eye, in the eye of the beholder. That is pretty spot on. Yeah, that's pretty um, spot on. As far as the point estimate goes. But I, yeah, I mean, but that's really what I'm getting at here, which is I, I think uh, obviously you got to look at two things. you got to look at where is the point estimate? How close to the null is it? And I bring this up because you may remember in one of the previous episodes, a couple back, we looked at a study 
that was looking at peanut uh, sensitization. Yeah. Desensitization. And uh, they did the study. Most of their study were under 14-year-olds, I think, or under 18-year-olds. I can't remember. But they did include some 15 to 45-year-olds. Yeah. And they drew the conclusion that they, there was no effect in the older population. We were all annoyed when by in this. Fact, yeah. When, yeah, when in fact they found an effect, they just were underpowered to be able to detect it statistically. And so they drew the conclusion there was no effect. And I would say that is that is the exact opposite. You, that is when you don't want to say there's no effect. You want to say, actually, the data are most consistent with an effect. We just didn't have, you know, we need more data. And I, so that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at. When is, where is your comfort zone with saying, yeah, yeah, I'm... I believe this is truly a null finding. Yeah, well, let's let's take this this uh, IVF paper as sort of a test case. So, you know, the confidence interval tells us that statistically we could be looking at as like you know the the papel scratching of the endometrium could make it harder to get pregnant or could make it slightly easier to get pregnant. But the most likely explanation, you know, interpretation is that it has no effect either way. But the confidence interval allows for us to say that there's the potential for a slight benefit or a slight you know, harm due to this on, on, on whether you can get pregnant or not. And so if one was like a funding agency trying to decide where to put one's money and you had done this question because it's a very legitimate question and you get this result, would the fact that the confidence interval, you know, includes the potential for slight benefit or slight, you know, harm, would that be enough to sink another million dollars into trying to answer this question? Or would you say effectively this study has said the answer seems to be no, let's move on? Like that, that, I, that to me is one I think that's the pragmatic way yeah. to go here. Right. Yeah. And so with this one, are you have enough information? I don't know. I mean, it was 1,378. And like you said, you know, it, the, the, I mean, the, the width I, of the, how, how, how precise do you want to be? It's a, it's a value judgment. I mean, I think, I think you have to make that judgment based on, on the power of the study. And, and, and oftentimes in situations like this, the authors will present what the power calculations are. So you have a precise quantitative it, assessment of, of, uh, you know, of, of how likely it would be for you to actually be able to find a difference given these numbers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the confidence interval tells you much more than, than power. They are intimate, re, intimately related, but I think the confidence interval tells you. But Chris, I, I, the, reason I, the reason I ask you is this precise enough is I personally struggle to, you know, to, to say when I think a confidence interval is narrow enough to conclude that something is null when I'm looking on the relative scale. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know what the what the relative measures mean in this case because I don't know what the what the what the baseline values are. Whereas if you convert these to absolutes, yeah, absolute differences and put a confidence Much interval more on useful. that, yeah, well, then I'm I'm better at saying, yeah, okay, a minus five percent plus five percent, okay, I'm willing to accept that. I can I can often make that judgment. Whereas when you tell me it's you know 0. 0.8 to one point two seven or whatever you said it was, I don't you know I don't know if that's well. Let's read the, the absolute values there to the record um, because they they are also they they add to this debate, and so the frequency that. The, you know, the end of end point for the study was whether the women who underwent the scratching technique were able to deliver a live, a live born baby versus not. And in the group who received the endometrial scratch therapy, 26.1% became pregnant. In the group that did not, 26.1% became pregnant. It is <laughs> pretty much pretty, what you would expect from the point to say that there was a difference there. Yeah. Okay, now, but but then if you look at the confidence interval, so you're saying the lower, the upper limit was 1.27, you said? Yeah, and lower was 0.78. 
So a 25% increase or decrease off of a 20% absolute rate, what's that, a 5% change? I, I don't know. That's why I'm saying I, the, 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 knowing the values helps. Getting the absolute difference helps. But I want a confidence interval around that to be able to judge whether or not I think it is precisely no. Right. I mean, it is, right? Yeah. It is in this case. I, I'm pretty sure we can conclude that. In other cases, it's not exactly because, you know, what if it's a, you know, the risk ratio is one point. Oh, what was 1.1? In some cases, 1.1 is meaningless. In some cases, 1.1 is a big deal. You know, is a big deal. And so it's it's context specific. Mm -hmm. It's it's baseline value specific. It's. I'm just saying it's this is this is is not always easy. And so if you put it on the absolute scale, I find it much easier. You know, I I think also talking about this this subject um, with respect to the findings in an individual null study is important, but also begs the issue of publication bias. And, and that studies, I mean, this, this appeared, was it the New England Journal? Yeah. This yeah. appeared in the New England Journal because obviously the editors felt like it was a, a, an important enough statement, but that's not the norm. And a lot of times a, null fi- a paper with a null finding is harder to get published. And, you know, we've talked about this in some of the other podcasts, but I think it's really, really important that if it's done well and it's done properly and it addresses a question of public health re- relevance, that they get published as prominently and as frequently as the the non-null findings, because otherwise you're, you know, you're you're missing information. You're gonna you're gonna be inefficiently reproducing these kinds of investigations, and it's gonna be a waste of money and and potential harm on on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. Precisely, null findings are important, and 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 clearly that there are null findings that people find important and interesting enough to to publish in the New England Journal. So I don't, I, I you know, I don't want to say that there are there. Are, they are never, but I do agree with you. They are, they're certainly harder to get published and, and, you know, you will struggle more. Mm -hmm. So the only thing I want to add to this is so, so clearly we're all kind of in the camp of the confidence interval is kind of where it's at. And well, it's the point estimate and the confidence interval in terms of trying to decide whether or not we are truly looking at a, a null finding where that that can break down a bit though, is, is when you have bias in your study. Mm -hmm. So if you have a really, really big study, and you find a null finding, and you've got a really, really narrow confidence interval around it, but your result is biased, then you have you know extreme confidence in the wrong answer, right. and and that I think can be can be quite dangerous, um, which is why I advocate for trying to quantify systematic error. But but I think the 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 point there is if. And there are so many exceptions to the rule, but if on average non-differential uh, misclassification biases towards the null when you have a dichotomous exposure and outcome, you know that's going to push you towards the null. If you've got large numbers, you can have a very precise null that is a that's, wrong yeah. null. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the danger yeah, lies. Yeah, totally agree. Yep, yep. Something to keep in mind, All too, right. is we continue to go into the era of big data. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Any any last words before we move it's on to our- all about the p-value, man. It's stop it. You're, right. you're, you're, I, you're only doing that because I'm not in the studio and can't reach over and Probably. hit you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, you, you'll be happy to know, Matt, that my, my latest mantra in peer reviews is when they give the, the point estimate and the constant interval and the p-value that I write back vociferously demanding that they remove all the p-values. Thank you, Chris. That makes me so why happy. Would they, why would they include both? They do it all the time. They do it all the time. People do it it's all the time. Like it seems, yep. it's, it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally persuaded by you, Matt. Eventually, you got to me that, that it is, in fact, adding no useful information. We should just uh, stop it. We are your pee peons. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not, that's, that's just terrible. letter P. That's not the word P. Right. 
Right. I'm sure. Right. Okay. Indeed. Well, let's move on. Let's definitely move on from that. All right, you go first, okay, Matt. Let's, okay, so let's go to our final our segment, which is our amusing. amazing. Amazing. Or wild and wacky. And amusing. It is now wild, it's and wild and wacky. It's not interesting it and awesome. amusing. How long have we been doing this? And you cannot, you cannot say it right. 41 sessions. 42. This is 42. This is 42. All right. Well, let's hear it. Uh, so we want to, well, no, first I have to do my intro where we want to highlight some of the weird, wacky things <laughs> that happen in our field. And that, or Chris will read us <laughs> the entire edition of PNAS. No, not this week. <laughs> Oh, okay. This week it's science. Uh, all right, so I'm going to go first. When you fill out your, when you create your syllabus for your course, you have to put in one of these academic integrity statements these days. Chris, you have, you have one of those for your course. This is like yeah. the plagiarism thing. Yep. Yeah, if you thou shalt not plagiarize, something like that. You got to you got to say something. So I found this online. I think I was pointed to this by Twitter. I cannot confirm that this was actually used in an actual syllabus, although the syllabus itself is online on an intro to philosophy course at Ohio State University for Philosophy 1100. So whether or not it's real or not, I cannot say. But this, this particular professor's, if it's real, academic integrity statement reads as follows. I have absolutely no tolerance for cheating in any form. Students who are caught cheating will be given the strongest possible consequences allowed by the university. Students who cheat and are not caught will be haunted by the memory of their misdeeds for the rest of their miserable lives. <laughs> wow. Guilt There trip. you go. I like there that. There you go. And you just leave it at that. You, you would know? think that that would be the kind of thing that they would put in a psychology syllabus as opposed yeah, to a philosophy point. syllabus. <laughs> good point. Although, you know, there's probably some, some moral issues and philosophical yeah, stuff as well. True. But yeah, good point. Um, can I All go right. next? Yep. Or Don, do you have something funny to say? Because mine is not funny. Mine is esoteric. Um, uh, I think <laughs> I think I do, yeah. I have so many to choose from. <laughs> so apparently, did you guys know that there are some animals that are super sensitive to the magnetosphere? Yes, birds. Birds, for example, we think, and maybe shark, we think. Sharks? Sharks. Great white sharks, I heard this. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Did you know that the same thing is true of dogs? Dogs? I didn't know. Yeah. Nope. So there's a, uh, this is a paper that um, appeared in the Frontiers in Zoology by Vlastimil Hart and others from the Czech University of Life Sciences. And hmm. what these individuals did was to measure the direction of the body axis in 70 dogs, 37 breeds, 1,893 observations while the dogs were defecating in a public park. And they also made 5,582 observations for while the dogs were urinating Why, where, in a public park. So, where did so, they put the Petri dishes? They didn't do it in Petri dishes. It was simply an observational so. study. And what they did was they looked at what the orientation... It was an observational study. <laughs> I hope it wasn't more than that. <laughs> there was no intervention planned. No data collection So beyond. what they did was they, uh, they observed the, the, the north-south orientation or the, the axial orientation of the dog while they defecated and while they urinated. And they determined that during period, and I didn't know this, but apparently the magnetosphere is very dynamic and there are periods when the magnetosphere is quiet 
and periods when it is not quiet. And they were okay. able to get that very specific information for that park and correlate that when the magnetosphere is very quiet, the dogs tended, while defecating, to line up in a north-south orientation. However, Why? they found it was true with female dogs defecating, male dogs defecating, female dogs urinating, but male dogs, while they were urinating, there was no correlation. Because oh, they're all over the place. Wow. But because they have, there's another purpose for a dog urinating besides just voiding itself. Right. Huh. Right. Interesting. So why? So wait, but why? The next time you take your dog out, check which you direction is lined up. And I, I, I saw you in the newspaper the, the, the magnetosphere so is shifting. Not the magnetosphere, but the the true. Well, that's what the, they, that, the, the that, magnetic north. That is, is what shifting. They, that is what they measured. That that was wow. what was stable and unstable. There's there are yeah. So there are shifts over over a long period of time, but there are also minute by minute fluctuations. Wow. And so dogs like to defecate north south when it's a time of quiet of a quiet magnetosphere. That is, that is cosmic. It, what, but wait, sorry, but, but <laughs> why? Uh, what? Why? I still don't get why. Why did they do this? Yeah. Why do they they line up because it it. Somehow dogs are sensitive to the orientation of the magnetic field and, and it just they feel more comfortable or more at home when they're pointing north while their wow. butt is pointing well, south. I bet it's got to Science. do with corks. There you go. All right. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I, you're right. Nothing nothing can, can compare uh, with that. But I, I'm going to talk about a, a paper that I found in Science by lead author Michael Mina and colleagues. And this is actually from a couple of years ago. This is 2015. And this is about uh, long-term measles-induced immunomodulation. Oh, I read that paper. That is, this is a really interesting paper. That's a paper. very cool paper. This is a very cool paper. And so uh, it, their, their paper was quite complex, and I'm going to try to reduce it to make it less complex. But the what, what we know is that historically measles killed millions of people, millions of kids mainly every year, and that even now measles kills maybe a couple hundred thousand kids on the planet every year. And this is a very topical issue and right now. This is a very now. topical issue because Absolutely. we're having measles outbreaks all over the Pacific Northwest right now in and California. Europe. And Europe. And in Europe. So it's like measles is back. I'm not going to get out of editorial, but measles is back, and obviously it's because of, of declining vaccination rates. Now, with the introduction of the measles vaccine, a very curious thing happened, which is that measles, you know, measles mortality went down. And that was not surprising at all, because you would expect that. that you know, that's what the measles vaccine should do. But interestingly, all-cause childhood mortality also went down in the aftermath of introduction of measles vaccines. And, you know, this has been noted for, for decades. The WHO has endorsed it in its official statements. But no one is really exactly sure why this happens. Um, or really how to quantify it. Now, in 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 the lab, there are some clues because if you like, you know, you affect a, a, a macaque with measles and look at his immune function, you'll see that the, the the measles infections leads to a total body depletion of lymphocytes, which are some of the main, you know, uh, white cells that fight infections. And also, it, it has hits on changes on the the innate immune system as well. And so there are all sorts of immunologic changes. But these have always been assumed to be fairly transient, and we're not really sure about the magnet magnitude of these effects. And so what they did in sort of a population modeling study is to look at the introduction of measles vaccine in the U UK and Wales, uh, excuse me, in England and Wales, in the United States and in Denmark. And in each of these locations, the measles vaccine was introduced at different points in time. So like in Denmark, this happened pretty recently. It was like 1982 or something, which I, I was surprised to learn about. I didn't know it was so, so recent. Um, whereas in the United States and the United Kingdom, it was back in the 50s. 
And so what, what you see is with the introduction of the measles vaccine that these utterly profound drops in non-measles-associated infectious disease deaths mm -hmm. in children. And so the question it was, like, is this because the measles vaccine is augmenting immunity? And that's why it's sort of a nonspecific way. So it's not just measles, but it boosts your immunity. Or is it because the measles infection that is being prevented by the measles vaccine leads to immunodeficiency? And it appears to be the latter based on these monkey studies. And so they were able to sort of do these interesting sort of computational analyses at, at, at whole population levels looking at the effect of this. And they found that the, the impact of measles, like a measles infection in a child, you know, under the age of five, registers as an increased absolute risk of mortality due to things like pneumococcal pneumonia and meningitis and diarrhea. And then that effect lasts for a about three years, this which is, is astonishing. I know, and profoundly important, especially yes. so now, important. because because of all the anti-vaxxers and all the people that are vaccine hesitant. Absolutely right. Because it's not just measles that could kill your kid. Right, and and, and the measles vaccine turns out to be a, have a, a double win. And, and kind of an interesting thing about this, the, their, their analysis, I thought made it a little more robust, because these are all observational data, of course. Mm. It's not an experiment was that they also looked to see what was the impact of the introduction of the pertussis vaccine. And, you know, to see, like, is this, you know, is this a health-seeking behavior associated with the kinds of people who get measles vaccines versus the mm. vaccine per se? Mm. And then they found with the pertussis that you see a drop in pertussis-specific mortality, but there is no spillover effect mm -hmm. to other infectious mm -hmm. diseases. It is wow. just measles. Yeah, that was a very cool paper. It was paper. such an interesting paper. And I and encourage the, the, the uh, listeners to go out and read it. It's a bit dense. Cite it again. It is Milna and colleagues uh, in the journal Science in 2015. So great paper. M-I-L-N-A? M-I-L-N-A. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, that is the end of our you've program. You've wasted if another you've hour. <laughs> got any feedback or this or any other episode or you want to Suggest a study or a topic for us to take on. You can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmadfox, or Chris at, at id.gill, or Don at, at @dthea1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>